social determinants of health into professional teams, improving healthcare delivery to patients and families. These are the themes of our Urban Service Talks, a podcast featuring the stories of students from a variety of healthcare professions, learning together to serve patients in our underserved community. We are a group of curious Urban Service Track AX scholars, sharing insight to educate and spark change wherever our stories are told. Uh, welcome back, listeners, to Urban Service Talks. Today's episode will be focusing on how to engage families in prioritizing mental health in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, we know the pandemic has affected everyone in different ways, but we want to kind of delve into its impact on the mental health of Connecticut youth. So just to begin, my name is Nisi Brooks. I use she, her, hers pronouns, and I'm a rising senior in the School of Nursing at the University of Connecticut in Stores, Connecticut. I'm part of the UST AHEC Scholars Program, Cohort 14, and I'll be helping to facilitate today's discussion with the help of Tyler. Hi, everyone. My name is Tyler James, pronouns she, her, hers, and I'm a rising second year dental student at UConn School of Dental Medicine in Farmington, Connecticut. And I'm also a member of UST AHEC Cohort 14. Today, we have the pleasure of introducing two guests to our episode, um, Dr. Robert Ketter and Tiana Hill. We'd like to thank you both for joining us today. Before we begin, uh, we want our listeners to get to know you both a little bit better. So why don't we start off with Dr. Ketter and tell us how we can refer to you and give us a short personal background. Sure. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, my name's Rob Ketter. You can call me Dr. Ketter if you like, but um, I'm a developmental and behavioral pediatrician here at Connecticut Children's Medical Center and an uh, assistant professor of pediatrics um, through the Yukon School of Medicine. Um, I go by the pronouns he, him, his, uh, and I am a Connecticut native who I identifies as second generation Cuban American. Um, if you'd like uh, additional background, I went to undergrad here in Connecticut at Fairfield University. I then went to medical school at Loyola University of Chicago's Stritch School of Medicine, did my pediatric residency here at Connecticut Children's through the University of Connecticut, then did a three-year fellowship in developmental behavioral pediatrics through Boston University and Boston Medical Center, while I also did a one-year um, LEND fellowship uh, for leadership education in neurodevelopmental and related disorders through the University of Massachusetts Shriver Center. Great. We are so happy to have you here today. Tiana, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, so my name is Tiana Hill. I am a uh, MSW, uh, graduated from uh, UConn School of Social Work. Um, so I've been in Connecticut for about 10 years. I'm actually a Florida native. Um, and I am a part of cohort seven. So I was a UST scholar as well. Um, I work for an organization called the Child Health and Development Institute. I'm a project coordinator. Um, so I specifically work on a program called the School-Based Diversion Initiative. Uh, and the work that we focus on is basically keeping kids out of the prison system. Um, so we focus primarily on juvenile justice and mental health. Um, and so part of our role is really educating um, teachers and staff around the harmful effects of putting kids in uh, prison. Um, and so making sure that they're not excluding these kids from school. And so by 
training teachers and staff around mental health and juvenile justice and having um, them understand the implications that that can have on a child's life. Wow, thank you so much for those introductions. It's so nice to have you both here. Um, you guys both named a lot of organizations and other groups you're affiliated with. Can you explain how your work with those groups um, helps to improve the mental health for children and families? Um, let's start with you, Tiana. Sure. Um, so the work that I do, like I said, is primarily focused on juvenile justice and mental health. Uh, so we do work with a lot of state agencies. So we work with uh, the Department of Children and Families. We also work with uh, the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, as well as the State Department of Ed. Um, so really working with these state agencies really enhances the work that we do because, you know, these are partners that, you know, a lot of the kids have affiliations with. So, you know, really having a relationship with these organizations uh, really kind of help enhance the work that we're trying to do. Um, and we also work with local, you know, community affiliates as well. So really looking at the local resources that are available uh, for children around mental health services. Uh, so a part of the work that I do, you know, definitely involves, um, you know, getting these folks involved in the idea of, you know, how mental health is affecting these kids, specifically in school, because we know that most of the kids that, uh, you know, we encounter, you're going to find them in a school. So, you know, the best way to kind of reach these children is in the school system. And so we really try to collaborate with the schools um, and mental health providers that are in those uh, neighboring communities. Sure. Um, so uh, I, I work primarily as a clinician where I get to um, meet uh, families um, of children with um, special needs or families who have concerns about how their children are growing and developing. And that includes a lot of um, behaviors, challenging behaviors and early emotional health needs. Um, I also work with kids who require special education in schools. So trying to help families navigate that system, understand what needs are where and how to help work with schools to help understand children is part of what I do. Um, I've also had the opportunity uh, to partner with my, my home institution here at Connecticut Children's, um, where through our public policy council and um, our uh, public relations group been able to do some media-based advocacy and talk about how we can really promote wellness and resilience um, throughout the mm -hmm. pandemic. So there have been some opportunities there. I also um, work with my professional organization, the Society for Developmental and Behavioral Pediatrics, um, where we are an interdisciplinary group, and I'm one of our co-chairs for our advocacy committee. So we've been doing a lot of discussions about um, things related to policy that really promote children's health and wellness. Great, thank you so much. And I think this is a really, this discussion brought a great segue into my next question, which is the work that you have done prior to the pandemic and now with COVID-19 obviously impacting so many people in so many different ways. We know, you see, and I know that pediatricians and social workers have now been posed with new challenges and difficulties because of COVID. So what were the biggest challenges you both faced um, in trying to support your patients and families during the pandemic? I know you both talked about working with schools. So that's an interesting topic, especially because schools moved online as well. So Dr. Cutter, would you like to start? Sure. Um, as the pandemic and kind of isolation and distancing precautions went into place, 
Um, we as a group had to change very quickly and we adapted um, from almost 0% telehealth to full telehealth. Um, in doing that too, families have had to make so many changes with many children doing remote or hybrid based learning programs, some children returning to school in person. Um, we also saw that several different school districts did things at different rates. So different children, depending on where they lived or what school district they were in, had different access to services, whether it just be general education services um, or special education services, including counseling and other things. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's really offered some unique opportunities though. I would say that because um, we learned the power of Zoom and teleconferencing, it's actually allowed for more communication for some of my more um, families with complex needs or children with complex needs, because I've been able to have some conferences with teachers or counselors or other clinicians re related to children and what they were going through. Uh, but we really did see that there were a lot of changes. Some children took well to remote or virtual learning. Other children really struggled. And um, for parents of children with special needs, the realization that sometimes school works as a respite service uh, was something that was really underappreciated as parents had to learn how to juggle working from home um, and managing school, among other things. Yeah, I, I agree with um, Dr. Ketter. We definitely had to become a little bit more innovative. Um, so moving online was definitely something uh, that we focused heavily on. Um, and fortunately, you know, we were able, you know, to provide a lot of the training that we typically provided for teachers and staff um, online. And so Zoom was really a lifesaver for us. And, and it actually worked out well, because I think you know, when we would have in-person training, you know, people were less likely to kind of speak up or ask questions. And it seemed like they were more um, involved uh, with the Zoom training that we were offered. And we were able to be innovative and get, you know, more people involved. And we were able to train even more people because, you know, when you're online, you know, you, you can have more people uh, join these calls and, you know, it's kind of on their schedule. So it, it, it allowed us to be uh, very flexible. Um, and I think, you know, it kind of helped us, you know, navigate it a little bit more. And, you know, I think people, you know, were looking uh, for resources, looking for additional help. So being able to do that and kind of meet people where they were really was uh, beneficial for us in the long run. Well, it's so interesting. How sometimes we forget about the shift that healthcare providers have to make in times of crisis like this. And it's not always a negative shift. Um, Dr. Ketter, you talked about how telehealth um, was brought to the forefront. So that showed that some patients who might not have had access to coming in to see you might've been able to see you online. They don't need transportation to log on and have a visit with you. Um, kind of in that way. So talking about people or their situations um, like impacting the care they get or um, those situations being overlooked in, in the you know, grand scheme of things. We've seen how research has shown that social determinants of health are directly related to one's risk of COVID-19. How have you seen those social determinants of health affect outcomes for Connecticut youth facing mental health challenges during this time? Um, we can start with you, Dr. Ketter. Sure. Um, we, we've often seen the complexities of social determinants of health and kind of the level of different disparities that exist in Connecticut and how that can really affect children and their outcomes. 
Um, as you said, yes, telehealth brought access to families um, and it, it mitigated the barrier of transportation, especially for families who are traveling from different corners of the state. As a specialist, I work with, with children from all over, so sometimes they drive up to an hour away, but I have colleagues in, in states like um, Georgia where they've had families have to travel up to five hours to get somewhere in person and telehealth has helped. On the flip side though, what we did learn was that broadband access is a real issue and not all families mm -hmm. have equal access to internet and broadband speed that allows for sufficient connection for video chat. And not all families have the techno literacy to, to manage and navigate that. Um, we've seen that those very things have been possible barriers to accessing school and learning and school services. And we know that schools provide such a layer of protection for children um, that that could be a real challenge. Um, We've also seen that families with more resources were able to develop or adapt to some of the challenges of the pandemic in different ways as well. Um, also, if you're social distancing and you have a lot more resources like land or neighborhoods or property, you can get outside and do things a little bit more. But if you're social distancing in a more urban environment, that brings through some other layers of of problems because you can't get out, you can't exercise as much, and you feel like you're kind of cooped up um, during the social distancing times. Yeah, you know, I agree with um, Dr. Ketter. I think, you know, environmental factors definitely uh, played a role, um, you know, in social determinants of health in terms of the kids that were in school. Um, and so like, for example, I had a district uh, that talked about, you know, they didn't really do the hybrid. It kind of gave uh, students the option of whether they wanted to do that or not. And what they found was that most of the kids that opted out of not coming to school were the kids that needed to be in school. So it was the kids that were living below poverty line, uh, the kids that were not doing well in school, um, the kids that had special education needs. Um, they also found that a lot of these kids were kind of supporting their parents because they might have lost a job or, you know, they needed a babysitter because they couldn't send their younger children to daycare. So, you know, that really played a, a major role um, in, so, in how some of these kids were affected uh, by the pandemic. So, you know, it was very uh, challenging, I think, for a lot of the school districts and navigating uh, how they were going to support these students. And I think it'll be uh, real interesting uh, when these kids go back to school next year, because I think there's not even going to be the option to do remote. Um, so I think, you know, we're going to be faced with a lot of uh, new challenges and, and behavior issues that, you know, we'll have to focus on in terms of how we deal with uh, some of the issues that they're having right now. So even, uh, thank you, um, to speak to some other social determinants of health with remote learning um, and telehealth, I've had opportunities mm -hmm. to see into families' homes and, and what the physical environment and setup can look like. And I didn't appreciate what it would be like for three children who are all siblings to have to like synchronously do all of their different remote learning. And if right. you live in a two bedroom apartment and there aren't places to go, you have three different teleconferences where the audio is trying to compete with, with one another and a parent who might also be working from home. So uh, the, the environment and learning environment could get kind of chaotic unless families had access to things like headphones with microphones mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, 
as as Miss um, Hills mentioned too, um, we're starting to see what things will look like as we're getting closer to the upcoming school year because there won't be the ability to do hybrid or virtual learning for most school districts. And we are already seeing some anxiety increasing with the thought of returning to school in person for some children. And uh, the AAP, American Academy of Pediatrics, has recently reported that we're seeing some children who are having some difficulty with returning to pre-pandemic levels of socialization mm -hmm. while we're still waiting for vaccines and things for younger children. Thank you both for uh, so much for sharing. It's actually interesting. I think about growing up and how like I have three other siblings and we had one computer in our house and that was good enough because we all went to school. But now because of COVID, you, if you have four children, each child needs a device because they all start school at the same time. So um, this is definitely a very important conversation that we're having today. And kind of beyond contracting the virus, we learned that living in lockdown is isolating and it disrupts mm -hmm. regular routines. And a lot of kids probably have not or will not uh, hit their developmental milestones because of COVID-19. So Nisi and I were wondering if like this level of trauma of the pandemic could have longstanding effects on our youth. And what should we know as future healthcare providers who will likely be caring for these children in the future? Sure. Um, that's a really great question. And there are so many layers to that question too. Um, stepping back though to your comment on having three or four children at home with one computer, it has been really impressive that some of the school districts really did a nice job of trying to get Chromebooks and other things into households. But then we learned that it's not just even a school system barrier, that there's so much infrastructure barrier. And, you know, I think the pandemic's really caused us to think, is the internet a service or is it really a utility? Uh, that we we need to have access to that really helps us bridge that educational gap. Um, but but stepping back to like what are some of the long-term effects? Yes, some children have not made as much progress with academic milestones given how hard it's been, but there are also some hidden challenges. Um, we can think of a trauma lens because we know that for some children they've been at home in environments where they're been more stress, parents might not be working or might have increased work stressors themselves. Um, with remote learning, we were concerned that there might be more opportunities for um, maltreatment at home and not having the ability for a teacher to notice if a child wasn't necessarily eating or might have experienced some abuse or neglect. Um, we worry about food security um, for families, and we worry about kind of developmental enrichment and nourishment. Um, we're social creatures, and attachment and strong relationships are how we kind of maintain our resilience and develop. And if you are isolated at home, um, we've seen big challenges with that. So um, there will be lots of layers, but I think that as we come back to schools, what will be really important is, is that we kind of bring a trauma-focused care lens to how we approach children and families and just be sensitive to that this is a difficult process, not just for them, but also for teachers who've been phenomenal and amazing over the past year with how they've learned how to adapt 
I think, you know, besides healthcare professionals, teachers have been frontline mm -hmm. care workers throughout this whole pandemic. They play such an important role. And um, it's really amazing to see what they're doing, as well as all the other school staff members, um, speech pathologists, school nurses, social workers, counselors, everyone's really stepped up. Yes, I, I you know, definitely agree with you. I think now more than ever, we'll need to look at um, the protective factors, right? So we know that there's all of these risks out here for these children that may be experiencing um, a number of things, you know, during the pandemic in terms of, you know, trauma and, you know, food securities and things like that, uh, mental health issues as well. We also know that, you know, mental health has been challenging for kids that might not have had issues uh, pre-pandemic. And so we're seeing a lot of kids are now experiencing anxiety, depression. And so I think, you know, identifying protective factors for these children is going to be very important. Also uh, looking at uh, their relationships, um, uh, any attachment they may have to parents and caregivers. So I think it's going to be, you know, really important that we think about, uh, you know, what's available to these kids, uh, you know, what are some things that we can do to kind of you know, really maintain their mental health and, you know, protect the factors play a huge role in that. So what are some things that they have that is positive in their life and how do we enhance upon those things um, and really make sure that, you know, they're getting the support that they need. And so that could be anything from, you know, a relationship that they have with someone, um, you know, activities that they enjoy, uh, making sure that they have the support that they need in schools. I think schools is going to be uh, a major factor because most of our kids spend most of their time there. And so how do we ensure uh, that these kids are getting what they need? I think, you know, what we kind of focus on this year is creating spaces for kids to um, come back to school and be able to kind of, you know, separate themselves if they need to. So we, we have these things, what we call like a kind of like a, a restroom or whatever. So it's like a room where they can kind of go and do mindfulness and, um, activity that kind of focused on really de-escalating themselves. And so I think it's going to play an important role in how we uh, bring kids back into the building and help them navigate some of the stresses that might have occurred during the pandemic. Thank you. Tiana, I really liked your what your point about protective factors. I haven't really thought about it that way, but COVID was definitely a time of instability. And now moving mm -hmm. forward, we need to help these uh, students and children regain stability and focus on like what has helped them. Um, so it's actually interesting here on this recording, we have four different people with four different backgrounds, but we're all talking about the same topic. So my question is um, what roles has or can interprofessional teams play in addressing these new needs that children may have? So how could we uh, Nisi and I work together in the future. What have you guys done in your work today? Tiana, why don't you start? Um, I think collaboration is definitely key, which I know um, UST is very big on this. You know, that's why they came up with this whole model of, you know, interdisciplinary team for uh, healthcare providers. So I think definitely collaborating more. Um, you know, I know there's been a lot of talk about definitely getting more social workers in these schools, right? And so I think, you know, there were times where, uh, you know, you had teachers that were trying to deal with uh, some of these behavior issues that they might not have been qualified to deal with. And so I think collaborating with social workers, school psychologists, um, to really deal with some of these um, 
new issue that these kids are going to be having is going to be very important. And I think just really just kind of staying on top of what's happening, right? So, you know, we, we see a lot of news articles that are coming out about, you know, what are some of the things that are happening with children? There's been a lot of research done um, in terms of how the pandemic has affected children uh, specifically. And so really, you know, collaborating with one another and talking about what we see, right? So, you know, we know that, for example, like for dental students, I know we hear a lot about, you know, children aren't necessarily visiting the dentist as often as they should because maybe they don't have the resources. So how do we work together to make sure um, that they have access to these things? And so I think it's just important to really just kind of stay on top of, you know, some of the major issues that are happening and, you know, knowing that we have a program like UST really uh, connecting with each other and talking about what are some of the things that we're seeing, because I think it's helpful of other healthcare providers to understand, you know, what they might be seeing that you might not be seeing. And so I think, you know, having that open line of communication is important, definitely. So I think interprofessionalism is so critical to everything that we do in child well-being. It really, um, I like to joke that there's the idiom, it takes a village to raise a child. And sometimes I work with children that might need all of Manhattan um, because they have complex needs. But it, it, I really mean it to emphasize that it's critical about making sure that we have a whole different array of people and professionals with different experiences and different perspectives who can really look um, at, at things from a holistic perspective. And um, the, the thoughts, opinions, and recommendations of colleagues have been so critical um, for kids. So uh, I love it now that with the pandemic, I could call into a child's PPT meeting if really needed, yeah. um, planning and placement team meeting for special education and speak with the school psychologist and their special education teacher and a parent and maybe even have their outpatient um, social worker or clinician join the call as well. Um, working with nursing colleagues has always been really important and school nurses are a great bridge to that, that medical educational crossover and uh, I've worked with school nurses in the past in, in Boston where we just talked about bullying and um, one of the school nurses realized that she could call and speak with mm -hmm. a child's primary care provider and was able to kind of navigate some of that intersection between what we call HIPAA and FERPA, um, the, the laws that protect patient privacy in appropriate ways, um, but also allow us to permit care when we're working with interprofessionals to help support a child in their best interests. Yeah. Wow. Like what you both said really sort of underscores the value of interprofessional teams. So thank you for that. But when I think of a care team, I'm not always thinking about healthcare professionals. So how do you think that parents or caregivers or community advocates can help urban children focus on that resilience we talked about as we navigate this new normal during the pandemic? I'm going to start with you, Tiana. Um, I would just say uh, being more supportive. Um, I think it's important, you know, like, you know, I'm, you're going to hear me talk about schools all the time because I think schools is just such an important place uh, to reach out to families because, like I said, kids spend most of their time there. So if you want to get in touch with a kid or get access to a kid, school is probably the first place to start. Um, so I think it's important. Um, that we utilize that as a resource, right? 
And so making sure that, you know, families understand that there is someone that they can reach out to at the school level, right? Because I think when you have, you know, and, and it's, I think it's also important for community uh, folks to be involved as well. So like, for example, you know, we definitely um, promote family advocacy because we know that one of the challenges for many schools is really engaging families. So it's like, well, how do we do that? Well, you get your community folks involved because these are people that they see out in the community. These are people that they may trust. And so you kind of bring those folks in to really kind of help uh, gauge that interest between the school and the families. Because I think that's the best way to kind of really support uh, the work that you're trying to do, especially when you're uh, trying to help a kid that may be in need of behavioral health services. And so I, I think, you know, mostly working as a team uh, to really be able to kind of focus um, on whatever whatever those needs are. So, I, you, you know, like I said, so I think, yeah, definitely involving the community folks and uh, a part of the teamwork uh, kind of really, you know, help move that process along. So I think it's important, you know, to really engage those people on that level. So um, really from what we know from research, the single most important protective factor for any child or person is strong, stable, supportive and nurturing relationships with others. Mm -hmm. So for children, having that strong protective relationship with a parent or caregiver, whether it be a legal guardian, an aunt, an uncle, a grandparent is really important. But we also know that it goes beyond that. And the more layers of connection we have, the more we have engagement and engagement in schools and, and with communities as well. Um, we know that we can think about who's on any child's team, but different children have different level of needs. And for the majority of children who don't have complex needs, their pediatrician can play an important role, but so can their primary care practitioner who might be a nurse practitioner or a PA um, physician assistant. Um, but maybe they work with a teacher at school and that teacher is their primary support. Um, it really can be anyone. And when I work with kids on a clinical level, like one-on-one -on -one, um, with adolescents, I always like to figure out who is that child's go-to team. Um, I call it their go-to team. So like who is their go-to person in the family? Who is their go-to person at school? Do they have a teacher that they feel that they're connected with? When I work with children who've um, been the target of bullying, which was a, a research interest of mine, um, I always ask who their go-to person is at school because even if it's a cafeteria worker, that's an important relationship to have. Mm -hmm. We want to um, emphasize the importance of those relationships. There's um, one research study that looked at some different factors that build in resilience for children. And it's, it's not just those feelings of um, engagement and having a strong supportive relationship at home, but an important factor was if, if children could name two adults besides their parents who genuinely took an interest in them. So um, I really wanna underscore the importance and role of teachers, coaches, and other professionals too, because you could be central to a child's life and nurturing. I'm sure we can all go back and think about the teachers or coaches who made an impact in our own lives. Right, that sounds like, well, I never thought about how big their you know, support system could be involving you know, people at school who you might not even consider um, you know, a customary important person in somebody's life. But I do hope that you know, everyone listening is able to take a little bit of what you both said and apply that to the children in their lives. Um, I think it would help them to create these, you know, this more fruitful foundation 
Um, once again, a big thank you to you, Dr. Ketter and Luciana Hill for coming on today to talk to us and sharing your important work with children and families. Mental health is so important and it's such an important part of our lives and our overall health, but it can be so easily overlooked, especially during such a you know, devastating time like the pandemic. But you know, thank you again for both of your insight on resiliency and for you know sharing such useful resources. Did you guys have any last minute comments that you wanted to say to our viewers? Sure. I just wanted to add in too, it's not just the those strong connections and supports. We have to remember that it's really important to teach children social and emotional skills. Um, mm -hmm. Learning emotional self-regulation strategies isn't something that all children just naturally pick up or do. And that's why we're, we're really starting to understand that it's helpful to teach and explicitly teach those skills. So remembering that a child might get frustrated because they haven't learned how to cope or deal with something yet is really important. And, you know, it's hard because when you have families who are coping and learning how to deal with the pandemic, you have a child who's trying to cope and learn how to deal with the pandemic. So we have to first provide family support and care because children don't grow up on their own. They're part of a family system. Um, but we can also think about teaching skills. And that's where it's been really great to see how Connecticut and even the Connecticut legislature has been moving towards promoting social emotional learning at schools. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, really some of the bills that got passed into laws are really supporting equity, understanding the, the challenges of the um, syndemic, to use a word that I'm borrowing from Dr. Wisdom Powell, um, that the pandemics brought up several layers of challenge, not just um, the challenges of COVID itself, mm -hmm. but the social inequities and challenges brought about by racism as well. So um, we want to think about how we can support kids and families through interpersonal relationships, but also skill building and mitigating some of those systemic barriers. So baby steps, but we're getting there. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much. Tiana, did you have any last minute remarks that you wanted to tell our viewers? Sure. Um, you know, I just want to say that, you know, for the most part, kids are resilient. Um, I think that we just have to provide uh, the support that they need uh, because the brain is not fully developed until age of 25. So definitely keeping that in mind, um, you know, we can definitely continue to support um, the kids in our community and making sure uh, that they get the support and services that they need. And I think Connecticut, for the most part, is one of the most progressive states in the country when it comes to uh, supporting our people. So I think, you know, that's something to be very proud of. Um, and, you know, just noted, knowing that there are many resources out here, there are many people that do care about um, the future of our children. And I think a great resource that most folks can use is 211. Um, they provide a wealth of services uh, for, you know, children that are having mental health needs. I, I believe they even go up to age 21 as long as kids are in school. In school. Um, so, you know, really utilizing the resources that we do have available. And, you know, for the petitioners out there that, you know, want to work in this field, um, just making sure that you uh, keep an open mind. Um, and be empathetic for what families are facing because, you know, sometimes on the surface it may look like, well, why aren't you doing X, Y, and Z? And, you know, there's so many layers to why a family may not be engaging or may not be doing the things that they need to do. Um, so just really being empathetic and, and thinking about uh, some of those factors when we are dealing with the families that we're trying to support. Wow, thank you both so much. 
We also like to just thank, you know, the Urban Service Talks team for all of their work helping to put together such an impactful and relevant episode. Yes, thank you. And as always, we like to end our episodes with questions for our listeners to think about. So have you considered what effects life in lockdown may have on children in your community? This podcast is sponsored by Connecticut AHEC and UConn Health. Let's keep this talk going. Join us on Twitter at Talks Service, Instagram at Urban Service Talks, or by email at ust.pod at gmail.com.